Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Episode 63, the atomic number of europium, NGC 63, is a spiral galaxy in the constellation Pisces. I was born in the 60s. I kid you not. A millennial asked me what my favorite book was last night and called me sir. And I said, Tequila Mockingbird. Tequila Mockingbird. What does that have to do with any of this? Nothing. Nothing. It's my podcast. Go, go, go. Welcome to the 63rd episode of the Prop G Show. In today's episode, we speak with Senator Al Franken. Senator Franken is a hero of mine. I find that he's moderate, thoughtful, showed up prepared to hearings, and leveraged slash deployed humor as an effective tool for creating some level of bipartisanship or in some instances, absolutely neutering the competition. I think humor is an outstanding weapon in a business format or in, in essentially any in any struggle, the ability to communicate a humor sort of displays irony, um, outlines how ridiculous the opposing arguments are, shows the other side that you don't take yourself too seriously, that maybe they can relate to you. I think it's an incredible weapon. We actually did a, a podcast earlier with uh, professors or Professor Jennifer Ocker and our colleague Naomi Bagdonos. We discussed with Senator Franken his introduction to comedy, the state of play around our political system and the economic response to the pandemic. We also get his advice around parenting and being a good partner. Okay. Okay. What's happening? What's, what does the dog hear that humans can't? That's right. That's right. What high pitched whistle of news and trends register with the canine today? Let's look at the streaming war, specifically the push towards international content. So roughly speaking, according to Antenna, an analytics company, the U.S. streaming market grew 23% in 2020. It's interesting. I think the search market grew about the same amount. Search and streaming both growing in the same amount. Coincidence? Coincidence? And as of this year, according to the wrap, Netflix accounts for about 20% of the market. I would have thought it was more. I would have thought it was more. Anyways, and while the streaming space may be saturated, consumers are willing to dole out money across different services for a wider content selection. In fact, in fact, Statista found that in 2020, over a third of U.S. households that had at least three video-on-demand subscriptions did so to access a particular program or original content. That makes that makes sense. So what do you need when you launch a streaming service? What do you, what do you need when you launch, basically, I think any services company or any CBG company? 
You need sort of a hero product. You need to say, okay, when I started L2, we started something called the Digital IQ Index. We had advisory, we had events, and I thought, okay, what's our hero product? What is our Mandalorian, right? What is our WandaVision? What is our House of Cards? What is our Game of Thrones? Every company, every concept, every business you start, you got to think, all right, we got to come up with something breakthrough. We can't be just a group of smart people or have a group of interesting products. We have to have our hero product. What is our... What is our Game of Thrones, if you will? And at L2, it's a digital IQ index. And we invested a lot in it, gathered a bunch of data, proprietary data sets, assembled it, 1,200 data points, and said, okay, this is your digital IQ and how you can benchmark yourself against your competitors. And we consistently overinvested in that product, recognizing we could build things and sell things around it. But you got to have at least one product or one service that you're known for and you kind of irrationally invest in and protect. Okay, what does that have to do with anything Let's visit Netflix for a second. The company reported its first quarter earnings last week and said it attracted 4 million new subscribers. However, that number was well below analyst projection of 6 million. Hmm, well, Netflix. Netflix stock opened down 8% the following day. That only means it's up about 3 billion percent in the last 10 years. True story. I bought Netflix at 12. It's at 500 and something right now. The bad news is that I sold it at 10 to take a tax loss and then never bought again. Oh, God, I want to find a time machine so I can travel back and then kill me and then kill myself. Jesus Christ. Okay. On a more positive note, Netflix's revenue grew 24% year over year, and the streaming service took home seven awards at the Oscars this past Sunday. Who would know? Because no one watched it. Anyways, that's more than any other studio. So what does that tell us? The pandemic boost is winding down. And the streaming giants will need new strategies to continue to grow in market value and attract new customers. Specifically, they'll need to double down on international content investments that we're seeing playing out now, or we're seeing that play out now. The Wall Street Journal reported that Netflix, Disney, and Amazon have all been making investments in content development overseas. We're invading the world with The Mandalorian and Transparent. Netflix expects to spend $17 billion on content this year, and about half of the productions currently and development are based outside the U.S. Hmm. With non-English language content making up approximately 38%, and it's already paying off. 89% of Netflix's 4 million new subscribers came from outside of the U.S. and Canada. So something I noticed, or something when you look at stock market value or brand equity value as registered by the, I think it was a brand asset evaluator, all the ad agencies came up with their own metrics. Most of them kind of gone away or they're never able to really monetize them. But the BAV, if I remember correctly, oh no, it was the Inner Brands Brand Index. I don't know what the fuck it is. Anyways, there was some insight into it. We reviewed my brand strategy class. But one of the levers of value that said, okay, this makes a brand more valuable in the markets is the percentage of revenue that brand or that product is able to garner from international. And specifically, if you have $100 in revenue, if you get 100 of it from the US, and you get 50 of it versus a company that gets 50 in the US and 50 internationally, company B, the one with more diverse revenues by geography, is worth 50 to 100% more than the company that just gets all of its revenues domestically. Why? Because it connotes that you have the ability or your product has the ability to sort of permeate geographic boundaries, meaning there's a much, much larger market potential and that you have the skill set to actually recognize or register that potential. And two, and two, the markets love... A diversification, and that is they don't like the up and down volatility of um, companies that are too concentrated. Similar to the way you get risk-free adjusted returns when you diversify your portfolio, meaning that you get better returns 
at a lower risk level, that sounds pretty good when you diversify, it's the same is true of business. And that is if you can diversify by, by geography, by business sector, by brands, you typically get a better return. Some of that flies in the face of the notion that the companies that have created the most value seem to be pretty focused in terms of one brand, but that's a different talk show, master brand versus house of brand or branded house versus house of brands. But we'll cover that in episode 2063. Anyways, they like, they like the international gig and with streaming, I don't want to say we've saturated the market. I buy everything. I'll get Peacock. Sure. I'll get Joey Bag of Donuts. I probably would have signed up for Quibi had I not been so critical of it. Uh, I, I don't think the consumer has run out of room around subscription media companies. I think that's bullshit. I think the consumer gets such incredible value for these things that they will continue to sign up for them as long as they continue to, or these companies continue to offer such incredible value, basically about a billion dollars in free content or a billion dollars in content for every buck a month you spend. That seems like a pretty good trade to me. Anyways, Disney Plus recently hit more than 100 million subscribers. Disney Plus, hands down, the winner, rookie of the year in streaming. And they expect to have a content budget of about $9 billion starting in 2024, which will include 50 international projects. As of mid-March, just 3% of Disney Plus content was developed outside the U.S. That's about to change. Uh, meanwhile, Amazon has doubled its production of original local language content every year since 2017. And the number of Prime Video's international subscribers increased by more than 80% in 2020 compared with 2019. HBO Max will finally be available internationally this June, starting with 39 territories across Latin America and the Caribbean. Good move. Good move. AT&T. AT&T. Not as dumb as we'd hoped. The AT&T, the phone giant, going straight to your living room with Wonder Woman 1984 and other great franchise films, that was a gangster move. And while the Academy Awards gave us this wonderful recreation or the really was able to communicate what the vibe is of hanging out in a train station for three hours. By the way, you want you want to revive the Academy Awards? Just show Brad Pitt. Oh, hello, Dreamy. Hello, Dreamy. What else? And maybe have, I don't know, maybe have Beyonce play the latest or play all of the nominees for best song and then have Chris Rock do the opening and have old school, maybe, I don't know, Steve Martin do the end and then make fun of Barbara Streisand or something. And boom, you're out. You're out in 30 minutes. You're out in 30 minutes. That's right, put me in charge. Fucking Steven Soderbergh running the Academy Awards. This year, the Academy Awards Oscars night to shine. Produced by the dog. Produced by the dog. Anyway, what else is heating up? What else is on a boil? Let's continue our conversation around the audio space, specifically, specifically podcasts. Historically, the money the Cabbage and Podcast has come from advertising. That revenue is expected to reach a billion dollars this year. Now platforms, including Apple and Spotify, are looking to monetize the business directly through exclusive podcasts and subscriptions. Spotify made a big splash around exclusivity when it signed a $100 million deal with Joe Rogan. Now it's launching a subscription service through Anchor's platform. Podcast creators will be able to set a fee for their content, much like the popular independent service Patreon. Apple, which originated the podcast medium, we'll call them podcasts because they first became popular on iPods, has not monetized the space directly until now. Until now. Last week, Apple also announced a subscription service for creators, but Apple being Apple will keep up to 30% of subscription revenue for the first year and then 15% after that. Manzana, wait, is that Apple in Spanish? Manzana, you deserve to be regulated or the App Store should be regulated. That's the power of owning the rails. Apple has been the dominant platform for podcast listeners for years, and now it wants to get its cut, but it may be too late. Is it too late? Is it too late? 
Apple's listener share has fallen to just 24%. And according to eMarketer, for the first time ever, Spotify will have more listeners than Apple this year. So I think there's an arbitrage going on here. There's something very special about podcasts in the sense that me being in your ears, you feel as if you know me. You feel close to me. If you read a blog post, you might be moved and impressed, or you might be angry and think, what a fucking idiot. But you don't feel an emotional connection. And there's something about when you and I have this conversation where you feel as if you know me and that we know each other. And that sort of intimacy creates loyalty. And if you can transfer that goodwill and that loyalty and that MPS to a broader service that sells handsets or paper towels, there's an arbitrage there. And I think that's what's happening in the podcast space, that this golden age of radio would be called podcasts, not because of the revenue they would produce, but because of the loyalty and the intimacy they would produce. And that's created, if you will, some sort of a NPS or a Goodwill arbitrage. Okay, let's round this out with more Apple news. The company released iOS 14.5 on Monday, which creates a major escalation in the privacy wars. iPhone users will now have to opt in to tracking. I have to opt in versus opt out. Actually, I just that's something I didn't know. It's not opt out. It's that you have to opt in, which is expected to deal a major blow to Facebook's data collection. A major blow. Son blow mayor. Tim Cook is talking his book here. So he may be principled, but this is also awfully convenient as he wants to drive users to apps where Apple gets a cut and away from web-based content where it doesn't, specifically the internet that is ad-supported. They don't get a cut of that, but they do get a cut when you say, well, I don't like ads and I value privacy and I'm willing to pay a fee. The reality is there's markets for both. There's a lot of people that despite big claims or big concerns about privacy are willing to let Google and Android and every handset manufacturer molest, with the exception of Apple, molest their data points. Android pulls about 1,200 data points a day from your phone, Apple around 200. Uh, but a lot of people are willing to make that trade to say, I would love to have the processing power of the space shuttle and free apps and free maps and incredible search queries and all this information at my fingertips for free. Effectively, you can get an Android phone for free right now if you pay Verizon and AT&T. It's amazing they've been able to create moats around their franchise businesses. Anyway, a lot of people make that trade. As a matter of fact, more people will make that trade. And Apple's trying to say, well, we want to make it harder to monetize that audience. And as a result, make those companies less profitable, maybe make the service less robust and move more people into the paid ecosystem because they get a toll on every payment or almost 80, every payment. I think about 80% of dollar volume in apps goes through the um, App Store on Apple, it's just striking here. I mean, if you think about this, Apple gets somewhere between, take all the streaming services, Apple gets somewhere between three and 12% of their top line revenue across Hulu, across Netflix, across HBO Max. Why? Because where do people go to download these apps, these streaming service apps? They go to Apple's App Store. So wow, is it good to own the Rails? The question now is how Facebook and Google will react. Will they start their hat white and deal honestly and fairly with their users. Uh, so we shouldn't bet on it. This is a fight taking place down in the technical details of these platforms and one with multi-billion dollar implications for digital advertising and social media players. This is, this is incredibly interesting. And generally, there'll be some emotion here because I think Tim Cook genuinely, authentically can't stand Mark Zuckerberg. Tim Cook strikes me as someone who has some sense of regard for the Commonwealth some sense of empathy, and is not a sociopath. And the CEO of Facebook is none of those things. And I think the CEO of Facebook sees 
uh, Tim Cook is a bit of a scold and also pretty uh, cynical about his intentions, or I think they're cynical about their intentions. I love this. I absolutely love this. Uh, I always say that uh, in the war between Murdoch and Zuckerberg, I hope the bullets win, but in the war between Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg, I'm I'm betting on the guy from, where did he grow up? Alabama? Where did Tim Cook grow up? Anyways, I'm betting on Tim Cook, and I think a, a lot of people are. We'll be right back with our conversation with former Minnesota Senator Al Franken. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. Here's our conversation with former Minnesota Senator Al Franken. Senator Franken, where does this podcast find you? Uh, New York City. What? What are you doing in New York City? Wait, you live here? I have grandchildren. Yeah. Uh, Wow. Uh, I did not know that. Where in New York City? Upper West Side, uh, 76th and Broadway. So I could I could just run into Senator Franken rolling around the Upper West Side right now. You are I are often am rolling around. Yes, just rolling around. <laughs> okay, so yeah. so so the, the question on everyone's mind: mm. What do you think of Elon Musk hosting Saturday Night Live? It's an interesting writing. You know, I was a writer for there, yeah. and it's very intriguing. And immediately. I thought of what not to do, you know, don't do an ad for Elon Musk's Musk, you know, don't do that. Um, I suppose there should be an Elon in space. Uh, Maybe someone, if someone plays Zuckerberg and Bezos, we should get a, uh, maybe a rich guy uh, (laughs) sketch, you know. Right. Uh, But I don't know. And I don't know. I hope he comes in early enough so they get a feel for what he can and can't do. He should do something where he's not playing Elon Musk, I'll tell you that, where they should play him like, uh, you know, he should play a an idiot or, or, you know, a guy down on his luck or something. So I want to use SNL as a, a jumping on point because I, I think a lot of people know you, but I, I don't think people really know you. How did you give us kind of who a, really knows me? Who really? He's a complex character. Give us the wonder years of of Senator <laughs> Al Franken. Like uh, growing up, your biggest influences, and how do how were you introduced to comedy? Ah, oh, that's easy. Um, I grew up in uh, 
St. Louis Park, Minnesota. It's mm -hmm. a, a suburb of Minneapolis. Um, my dad uh, didn't graduate high school. He was a printing salesman. Uh, we lived, you know, a two-bedroom, one-bath house. I felt like the luckiest kid in the world because I was. I was growing up middle class in, mm -hmm. you know, in St. Louis Park. Uh, and, the, you know, in, this is post-World War II 50s. You know, mm -hmm. it, it was um, a great time. It was, if you were... If, if someone was pro-Nazi at that point, they kept that to themselves. It was very anti-Nazi. That was on the download, the whole Nazi thing? <laughs> yes. If you were a Nazi, you just didn't bring it up. Yeah. Um, so my dad loved comedy. So uh, basically, we just spent a lot of time watching comedy on TV. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, um, my dad inhaled a pipe, uh, inhaled a pipe, uh, for his entire adult life. And so by, if he would get on a laughing jag, he would cough up phlegm. Right. So if my, if we were watching Carson and Johnny said, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Buddy Hackett, my mom would leave the room because she mm -hmm. couldn't stand the phlegm. But my brother and I would stay. And my dad God, he loved Buddy Hack and he loved comedians. And that's really how I got introduced. And he was funny, my dad. My dad was yeah. really funny. And so that was really it. My mom was funny too. But uh, and a sweet guy. My dad was such a sweet guy. So that was it. That was it. And then I started doing comedy in high school with mm -hmm. a partner, Tom Davis. You remember Franken and Davis at all? Mm -hmm. I do. And um, so we started performing. We started performing at a like a theater, like a Second City type theater, improv-based uh, in high school. And then during college, we'd perform there. And between my junior and senior year of college, uh, Tom and I hitchhiked out to L.A. from Minnesota mm -hmm. and uh, did the comedy store and uh, kind of got a little bit on the, on the map and um, went out to L.A. after college. Two years later, boom, SNL started. Lauren hired us. So two years writers. out of college, so you're literally 24 when you got onto SNL. Yep, yep. As a writer or in front of the camera? As a writer, and and actually a little bit in front of the camera. We were, Franken and Davis was, he'd throw us up in dress, <laughs> in dress mm -hmm. rehearsal. And if the show, if so much stuff tanked in dress, he'd put us on. <laughs> so enough so you're words. the sixth man. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that didn't happen much, but then we got on, uh, I think our first show was an Elliot Gould show that won an Emmy. That show won an Emmy. Mm-hmm. So. Gosh, Elliot Gould. And so how long at SNL? Did the first five years, left for five years, and came back when Lauren came back. I was a Lauren again writer. And uh, then I did 10 years. So I did 75 to 80, first five. And then... Uh, 85 to 95. So give us some inside baseball here, because you were kind of back. That was like, was that Jane Curtin, Dan Aykroyd, Belushi, yep. Gilda Routner, that whole crowd? Um, yeah, yeah, you just did four of the seven. There you go. <laughs> yeah, there was only was seven Chevy people. Chase, Garrett. Uh, uh, Aykroyd, gosh. Belushi, right. uh, Jane Lurie, and Gilda. Give us, uh, and obviously you were exposed to other cast members, give us a, 
uh, most talented in your viewpoint, nicest person, most difficult person? Well, to me, the consummate live air performer is Dan Aykroyd. Uh, first of all, Dan really embodied the characters he played. And also, he, you know, we, we, uh, we made cuts and rewrote between dress and air. And he could, he could internalize those cuts he, faster than anyone I've seen. You know, uh, uh, Phil Hartman was also amazing at that. You know, but boy, that first cast, everybody was great. Everybody was great. And it was an advantage, you know, I look at the cast now, it's a, it's a lot of people. And I think there's an advantage to the cast of only having seven because they each got the airtime. Yeah. And if you get airtime, you get confidence, first of all. You get mm -hmm. practice doing it and you get confidence and you're just out there and you're doing it. And you play everything. You play an old person, you play, you know, you play a, a little girl, you play, you know, you play everything. So uh, let's pivot to politics. Be a sports commentator here in the sport of politics, and that is look at two teams, Democrats, Republicans. Give us what you think the state of play is and how each of the teams are doing and what you see is kind of the dynamics. Call the, call the sport, call the game right now. Well, it's not a sport. It's too high stakes. I mean, it mm -hmm. is. It's a game, I guess. So maybe mm -hmm. it is. Um, you know, the coach on the Republican side is Mitch McConnell. Mm -hmm. And he will, he he'll make it impossible for uh, for Democrats for uh, for the president to do much of anything if he can help it. He wants mm -hmm. him to fail. Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell wants Biden to fail. He wanted Obama to fail. He wanted to win the midterms in ten. I don't I don't know if you remember, um, you know them. Threatening, <laughs> we we went in the the sequester. We cut, mm -hmm. we had to cut spending during a recession. I mean, it was crazy, and and they would. It was under the guise of we care about the deficit. They didn't care about deficits. They just wanted Obama to lose, and they wanted us to lose seats. And they, so there's that. You know, our team. I have reason to have problems with our team, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but I was very pleased with, uh, you know, American Recovery Act. I thought that did a lot of great things. I thought that was an achievement. Unfortunately, I mean, that was something that 65, 70% of Americans were for, not one Republican voted for it in either house. You know, everyone says, well, Biden has to reach out to Republicans. Well, they've got to reach back a little bit. Mm -hmm. And remember that 10... Republican senators showed up at the White House and they came back with like $600 billion to his 1.9. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it was Obama all over again. That was basically, mm -hmm. you know, what, what they came up with after, you know, when we were in the Great Recession. So, so the ossification or the partisanship is pretty easy to identify. Uh, what, if you try and reverse engineer to the problem and then hopefully the solution, are there two or three things that stand out where you think this is, this is the, the shifts or the changes that need to be made to create 
uh, a situation where, you know, we're still representing our ideals, but do, re- you know, do try and focus on we're Americans first, not red or blue. Do you, what, any thoughts on solutions? First of all, I think that there are going to be areas of agreement, I hope, on infrastructure, for example. Uh, Republicans mm-hmm. always say they want infrastructure. Um, there's going to be a lot of fights over the, what that is, the shape of it, the size of it. But I hope that there can be some working together on that. Again, I have my doubts about um, McConnell and Republicans working together on that. I think that on this uh, crime bill, on the George Floyd bill, I think there will be compromise on that. That's what Mm -hmm. I'm hearing. You know, the the question like like on on, uh, voting rights and on elections, that is... uh, I don't see them coming together on this at all because basically what I see them doing nationwide is doing everything they can to make it harder for certain people to vote. You know, they did their autopsy back in um, in 14, I guess it was. And uh, after uh, Romney lost and their autopsy said, we have to start reaching out to uh, minorities. Mm-hmm. And instead, they said, "Nah," and we got, <laughs> and they got Trump. Yeah, and they won. And now the whole party is captured. Basically, enough of the party is captured by Trump is, that that's who they are now, and that's pretty scary. And that that you know that's people that's Americans who are one getting a lot of disinformation. They're getting news from their information from a disinformation universe mm-hmm. that includes Fox, that includes Newsmax, that includes a lot of stuff on, on social media that they get from mm-hmm. everywhere from Facebook. And that's why a certain percentage of people believe that Democrats kill children and drink their blood. Mm-hmm. You're referring to an op-ed you wrote in the L.A. Times where you said, quote, Americans are divided into two completely different information universes, and that's a problem. And, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem like social media is doing anything new. They're just making it worse, right? And oh, it, much you, worse. Agreed. And what do you think? Any any thoughts on legislation or regulation that could, that could, um, that could solve that problem or at least reduce it? Well, I think that we have to look at a couple things. We have to look mm-hmm. at some antitrust stuff. Mm-hmm. We also, I think, two thirty section two thirty needs to be looked at. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. Two thirty was written in what 1996 at yep. the dawn of of um, the internet, and basically provided protection for platforms and said that they were. Uh, they're just platforms. They weren't publishers, so they were uh, would held harmless. Could not um, be held responsible for content that other people put on there. And I understood that we believe in you know the First Amendment, but uh, I don't think people wrote that envision what they're seeing now. And there's the First Amendment does have limits. You, there's a lot of people yelling fire in a crowded movie theater right now on the internet. Uh, Facebook doesn't do its due diligence. They don't do it. 
Returning to the Republican Party, I was just down in Florida with uh, my co-host of another podcast, and I went to this thing called the Boca Bash, and I saw Trump 2024. Who do you, if you had to try and handicap who you think the Republican nominee for president in 2024 would be, who do you think are the top contenders? Boy, uh, that's so far away, but yep. I think that uh, Trump has still has his power over the party has mm -hmm. enough power over you know a 65 percent of the party and i don't know what he wants to do i don't know if he wants to profit from that position i don't know what he wants to do but i'd say if you were betting you'd have to bet on him as a front runner if you're betting and mm -hmm. then uh, among these other guys I know who wants to run. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's Cruz, it's Hawley, it's Scott, it's uh, the governor of Florida. Um, DeSantis, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about Nikki Haley? Do you think she's she's in the mix? Sure. I, I imagine yeah. she'll run. Um, it'll be interesting. I think Sass will run. I think it's interesting watching Sass, which is that he voted for... Uh, to convict on on, on the uh, impeachment, but then he voted against Garland. Garland is actually the most suited person <laughs> that I yeah, can think of to be attorney general. Whether you, I mean, that a Democrat could possibly appoint or that anyone could appoint. He's got the, mm -hmm. the just the integrity and the chops and the expertise. I, I, I don't get that. And I thought that was him trying to make himself healthy with the right or something. I think he, I, I, I was just kind of looking at that and going like, oh, he, he thinks, oh, well, I guess I, maybe I miscalculated on that vote. So I, I, those are the people I think of as running. And who do you think, um, we won't even talk about 2024. Who do you think are the real rising stars in the Democratic Party? That's a good question. Let me think. Let me think. Young, young. <laughs> um, young, young people. What about your neighbor, Senator Klobuchar? I'll just throw some out. Well, she's uh, she did well in this uh, last race. I think she's uh, obviously a force in the Senate. She's mm -hmm. uh, been there Quite a while. She has leadership. She's the head of the rules committee. The rules committee is has become very important in light mm -hmm. of uh, January sixth, um, and she is uh, someone who uh, likes to work cross party lines and legislate. So uh, I think she'll be a good a force for good in in the in the Senate. Uh, you got to give me some uh, some time here. <laughs> let me let me think. I, well, I'll throw some out. A guy I supported for president in 2020, Senator Michael Bennett. There's a guy like that who's more of a, I don't know, I don't policy wonk. I don't know what the right term is. And it doesn't, Jones for every camera. Do you think there's a uh, there's a future for a senator like that in, in a presidential race? He ran, got nowhere. Do you think he, yeah, he would I ever Yeah, I think he got nowhere for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, I, I served on the education uh, help committee with him. Mm -hmm. Um you know, and uh, we did the NCLB reform, the Child Left Behind reform there. And I was hoping for more leadership from him on that since he had been a superintendent of schools. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like, you know, he's a good uh, good senator. I, I don't really feel like 
he sort of has the presentational chops mm-hmm. that you need, unfortunately. And he has sort of two speeds. He has uh, like patrician mm-hmm. and yelling. <laughs> that's sort of <laughs> in that order. Yeah, I mean that seems to be his two speeds. <laughs> I've noticed, you know. I, listen, we have, you know, we have a lot of great young people in the party. Um, you know, I, and again, this is kind of future, but Melvin Carter, who's the mm-hmm. mayor of St. Paul, is just terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, you know, he's mayor right now. You have to see his his depths. Um, I think Andrew Cuomo isn't going to be president. I just have that inkling. Yeah. That's you're going long on that one, huh? You, yeah. you, you don't think that's going to work out? <laughs> yeah, I'm going uh, long on that. What about the squad? Any comers there? Uh, people to keep your eye on? Well, AOC, you can't mm-hmm. uh, uh, ignore her. She has great messaging instincts. She is really mm-hmm. smart. She does. I've been very impressed with her questioning, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah, I pay hearings. very yeah. during hearings, and I pay a lot of attention to that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I, that's one of the things I enjoyed the most, mm-hmm. uh, and prepared the most for, and I could see that she does too. And I'm very impressed mm-hmm. with that. And I think she's, yeah, yeah. She's a comer, no doubt about, I mean, that that's obvious. I know Ilhan, Ilhan, uh, I know, yep. and, uh, you know, um, we have some differences on some policy, you know, but to have a Somali American representing mm-hmm. Minneapolis, representing Minnesota in Congress is really something. Would you ever consider running for office again? Uh, I'm going to keep my options open. I'm young. I'm. I'm just. I'm turning seventy. <laughs> that is young. Another ten yes. years, you could be president. Um, <laughs> but what would be? What would, just hypothetically, what would be the reentry point for uh, Al Franken? Would it be the House, the Senate, the governor, something? What would be the? What would be the likely reentry point? Well, I don't think I want to be a governor. Uh, I love mm-hmm. the Senate. That's what I would, mm-hmm. you know, love to do uh, again. I mean, I love the Senate. I really did. And um, if I did it again, I think that's probably what I might do. Unless I did something uh, quite local. Coming up after the break. The gaps in wealth and income in this country are scandalous. And there's so much that we can do to address that. But we have so much we need to do in, in that regard in terms of, you know, early childhood education. My goodness. Making sure that kids go to good schools. Stay with us. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. If you own a business, money is often at the top of your mind. How to save it, how to spend it, how much you need, how much you don't need. But simple math will tell you that the less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have to keep the money you've earned. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a leading cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. 
You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com slash prof. NetSuite.com slash prof. NetSuite.com slash prof. So if I did it again is about the strongest proclamation of, of saying you're going to run without actually saying, announcing you're going to run. So it's, it sounds like I'm, you know, I'm going to put words in your mouth. It's something you're actively considering. Uh, Not really. I'm just saying like, I, you know, I came off of a, a big blow and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm in a good place now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to see what uh, what I'm going to do. I'm 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 doing what you're doing here. I'm doing a podcast, mm-hmm. uh, which I enjoy a lot, and I'm now doing videos, uh, which I like. And I think when uh, when I, before all of COVID, I was out touring. I was mm-hmm. I was doing stand up basically you're with kidding. politics. How was that? How was that? Well, that was great. It was very much combined with it was during. The political season. It was during uh, sort of uh, the primaries and then just leading all the way up to COVID. And so uh, I was kind of doing half, I was doing what I do, <laughs> which is sort of what I'm doing here, I guess, except I think a little bit more comedy. And it was fun. I, I loved it. And I had big crowds and uh, it was, you know, there's nothing better than getting laughs. And there's nothing better than that feedback with an audience. That's then, you know, I know that everybody, every performer misses that and can't wait till, till everyone is inoculated in the United States. <laughs> well, let's talk about the pandemic. Give us, give us a sense of what you've learned or what you think the novel coronavirus has revealed about America and then your thoughts on the, the re- government's response. Uh, the, some of the stuff it revealed was not good. Mm-hmm. Um, it First of all, obviously, the response by the Trump administration and Trump himself was, was a scandal. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as Burks said, you know, after a hundred thousand deaths, that could have been mitigated. And this guy was so irresponsible. It's tragic. It's just tragic. I think it also revealed, you know, there are people are a uh, food insecurity tripled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the our gaps in uh, wealth and income in this country are scandalous. And um, we just didn't function well. And now I think what we're seeing to go back to these two, two universes of information, this disinformation universe is incredibly pernicious and incredibly dangerous. And this, I, this thing that, that, that they're selling, and I think very cynically, many of them, that the vaccine uh, doesn't work or isn't safe is so dangerous mm-hmm. um, 
We need every. This is the polio vaccine. This is the smallpox vaccine. People don't understand, for example, on Pfizer, 95% effective. If I talk to anyone, they don't know what that actually means. And what it means is, if you look at the, a double-blind study, they had like 28,600 people in the placebo group, same amount, number, in the Pfizer group. A certain number, and it was very not very big at all, like 160 people out of the 25,600 in the placebo group tested positive, got infected. Mm -hmm. Eight in the Pfizer group. That's 5%. That's what they said, 95% effective. But a lot of people thought, oh, that means I have a 5% chance with the Pfizer of getting infected. No. <laughs> no, it's much, much lower than that. And not only that, those eight people didn't get sick. Right. They tested positive. They didn't know they were infected. This is insane not to take. Mm -hmm. And when they don't, and when they get this information and they get it from Tucker Carlson, they get who know has to know better, has to know better. And mm -hmm. the danger of people not taking it is they get it, and that gives the virus a chance to mutate. And the more chances it has to mutate, opportunities it has to mutate, the more possibility that we'll get a variant that is vaccine resistant. Mm -hmm. And we'll go back to the drawing board. That is dangerous to everyone. It's not just dangerous to the people who aren't taking the vaccine. It's dangerous to everyone. Mm -hmm. So that just makes me furious. Yeah, by the way, that thumping was Senator Franken pounding his fist on the table. Uh, so uh, talk a little bit about the stimulus and the bailout packages. How do you think, uh, uh, how do you think we've handled the economic uh, response to, the, to, the, to COVID-19? Well, I I'm, I'm, was gratified that we had this bigger package. Um, mm -hmm. And again, looking back at uh, 2009, where, man, they just didn't, give a sufficient, pass a sufficient enough package at that time and kept us in the recession longer than we had to be. You know, I don't know if everything was targeted in exactly the right way. I, I think the $3,000 tax credit per kid is amazing because mm -hmm. that, you know, I haven't really studied it at all, but I keep hearing that it's going to reduce Childhood poverty by 50%. That's the, I mean, wow. We, we, as I said earlier, the gaps in wealth and income in this country are scandalous. And there's so much that we can do to address that. And that's, that is, that's part of it right there. But we have so much we need to do in, in that regard in terms of, you know, early childhood education. My goodness, making sure that. Kids go to good schools. Mm -hmm. You know, right now, basically schools are funded by property tax. So if you live in an affluent neighborhood, you go to a good school. And if mm -hmm. you don't, you go to, you know, you don't go to a good school. That's, right. that's not right. That's not right. That doesn't work. Uh, we, I do think an infrastructure bill 
is really important. And I hope it gets Republican support because I think a lot of those jobs will be the kind of jobs. And uh, uh, I've heard Buttigieg say this, that most of those jobs don't require a college, a college degree. And we're talking about blue collar jobs. We're talking and we're talking about also transitioning so that we have a green energy economy, which we have to do. We have to do it. There's just no doubt about it. We have to do it. Mm -hmm. And so, man, I just hope we go that direction. You know, McConnell, you just heard McConnell like after that bill was, well, he just wants to get out in front of the parade, Biden does. Well, he knows the economy is already expanding and he just wants to take credit for it. Oh, screw you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I, but, uh, so look, I, you gotta get, I think you got to give him his props. I think he's been brilliant. Like, who on the Democratic side is that strategically deft at getting in the way of Republican? You know, where's our, uh, well, let me ask this. Who's our Mitch McConnell? Sort of the dark horse of, or the dark genius or the dark Satan of genius. Well, I don't think we have one in terms mm -hmm. of, and maybe that's a good thing because mm -hmm. really, really, do you want to be Mitch McConnell? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, Chuck Schumer is our leader and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Godspeed. I mean, and he did that. He shepherded that through. You know, I have this odd suspicion and this wouldn't be kosher, mm -hmm. but I think the parliamentarian somewhere in her brain knew that if they did the $15 an hour in the reconciliation, that they weren't going to get 50. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of happy in an odd way. I love the minimum wage to be $15 an hour. It's a scandal what it is now. It's yeah. just ridiculous, but you wouldn't have gotten Manchin's vote. You wouldn't have gotten a number of votes, I don't think, but you certainly wouldn't have gotten Manchin's. And you know, God bless Manchin. If it weren't for him, we wouldn't be in the majority. People have to remember that. He, he he's senator from a state that went for <laughs> went for Trump by forty points. And I also think that what he's doing is interesting. He he has about the filibuster. He basically at one point indicated. Remember, he did the full Ginsburg one weekend. Mm -hmm. He did it was on every Sunday show. You know what I'm talking about? The full Ginsburg. Uh, Monica so. Lewinsky's uh, lawyer was Ginsburg, mm -hmm. named Ginsburg, mm -hmm. and he did every Sunday show. And so now they call it the full Ginsburg, mm -hmm. if you do every Sunday show. And so Joe did it at some point. He was asked about the filibuster and a couple of them and said that he would be open to a modification. And mm -hmm. then he later wrote an op-ed saying, well, he doesn't want to end the filibuster, which he had said earlier, but he doesn't want to weaken it either. Well, you can modify without weakening it, weakening it, I think. And all, but what he said was he wants to go back to regular order, basically. He wants to do it the way you're supposed to do it. You, you write bills in committee. You do hearings. You write the bill. You take the bill to the floor. You have an open amendment process. People vote on amendments. Then you vote on the bill and you pass the bill. <laughs> and then you, yeah. you know, that's what he wants to, but. The, I don't know if Mitch will do that. And I think that Joe is to some degree saying, okay, you know, here's your opportunity. Do that. 
go back to doing what we're supposed to do. Because mm-hmm. we certainly didn't do that while Mitch, well, Trump was president and Mitch was a leader. So, so uh, one of the candidates, from, a presidential candidate on the Democratic side and a candidate for mayor now here in New York, Andrew Yang, said something that um, struck me. And he said that one of the mistakes the Democratic Party has made is they feel that they've been appointed a kind of a police force for cultural issues and that most Americans are more concerned with kind of their, their challenges facing them daily. Do you think there's any truth to that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think, you know, spe- speaking of one of the reasons I had Andrew on uh, my podcast and, you know, I said, you know why you did well? Because <laughs> so, you're a human being on the stage. People responded to him because he was not programmed. He wasn't. Uh, the, it was hard with 10 candidates up there and everybody giving a minute to an answer. And But he's right. He's right. And I think people care about. And, uh, yeah, I think people have obviously been uh, somewhat offended by by what he's talking about. And uh, the if you look. Well, let me back up. You've been on SNL. Um, you're nominated or elected to the U.S. Senate. But I find arguably your most impressive accomplishment is that you've been married for 45 years. And we have our, our listenership senator is very young and very male. And mm-hmm. I'd love to get your thoughts or advice to, uh, uh, to men around being a good father and a good husband. Well, uh, if you have kids, and that's how, that that's the first prerequisite to be a good father. <laughs> mm-hmm. That helps uh, to have kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, uh, the first thing that you do is be a good parent together, that you parent together, because that's your that's your job. Right. Mm-hmm. And. Um, I, so I think that's how we saw ourselves, and now we see ourselves as grandparents. So I think uh, being a family, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is is part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is a big part, big big part of it, and um, and then you have to, you know, keep the spark going. And uh, I'm not gonna get into that (laughs) there you go right yeah the spark the spark conversation yeah all right let's do a quick lightning round before we let you go just first thing that kind of pops in your mind all right so uh biggest influence in your life uh my dad uh biggest influence in your life that wasn't uh you know in your life (laughs) okay i'm sorry i missed i missed your last thing that wasn't what well, a book, something outside, something not an immediate family member, someone you never met, or a piece of art, a piece of. Oh, I see what you're learning. saying. Uh, but boy, uh, Paul Wellstone. Hmm. Highest moment, most proud moment. My proudest moment. Um, my proudest moments are always family. Just it, it's a continuous thing. It's just mm-hmm. seeing my grandchildren be already developing into great people. That's mm-hmm. That makes me really proud. One piece of advice you would give your younger self? Well, 
Uh, don't be hard on yourself. Mm-hmm. Favorite piece of media? Favorite TV show? Favorite music? Well, Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead. Yes. That's a, that, <laughs> I like that's that a crowd, laugh. That's a crowd like pleaser. That. That's Why? A, you're just aging. Or so. Buddy Hackett and Grateful Dead. Jesus Christ, are you like 105? Buddy Hackett and Grateful Dead. There you go. <laughs> yes. Uh, so now that you're no longer in office, uh, experience with drugs and favorite drug. Well, uh, I, my experience with drugs is uh, I used to take uh, some cocaine at SNL, but only to stay up long enough to see that Belushi doesn't do too much cocaine. Uh, then, let me see. Oh, I did LSD. Guess what? During mm -hmm. dead shows. <laughs> During dead shows. Yeah, there's one central theme here. It all comes back to the Grateful Dead. Yeah. And uh, I don't drink except occasional beer. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't. I remember once, though, I was like when I uh, was running in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it turned out that Norm Coleman was running against like sold pot at Hofstra or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it became an issue. And then I had been out very publicly said exactly what I've told you. Very has been an article in Rolling Stone had been somewhere else. So the guy from the Star Tribune wants me to. Say, okay, what, you know, what did, uh, goes to my press guy and says, what did he take? And he said, well, it's in the press. It's this. No, I want him to say it to me. And I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, why? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's there. It's, it's not, it's not going to change. No, I want him to talk to me. Right. Uh, no. <laughs> like, I'll talk to you. I don't care. But he was a reporter. <laughs> We're just telling him it's there. Nah. No, right. All right, well, it's listen, funny, uh, uh, Senator, like, uh, I think we can forgive you for, for liking the Grateful Dead. I think there's a lot of us, though, that are angry you resigned, and the only way we'll forgive you is if you run again. And I, I just sense in your voice is a need is a need to run again. I, I, I just get that sense that you uh, have you, not— uh... God, have the worst instincts. You've got to put a bow on this. The, the, <laughs> you this don't know how is, to read people, man. This is the best ending to the movie that is the Franken story, is you running again. Anyways, uh, Senator Franken is a comedian, politician, and author of four number one New York Times bestsellers. During Senator Franken's time as Minnesota Senator from 09 to 18, he served on the judiciary, engineering, Indian affairs, and health. That's health, education, labor and pensions committees, and also wrote a key provision of the Affordable Care Act. He is currently the host of the Al Franken podcast. He joins us from the Upper West Side, where he is hanging with his kids and grandkids. Senator Franken, uh, I'm in on this campaign. I'm going to vote it's, with my no campaign and my checkbook. Senator, Senator, stay <laughs> safe. But uh, I'll hold you to fan. the money. <laughs> 100%. Just don't cash the check. I'll send it. Just don't cash okay, it. Okay, all right. All right, Senator. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Scott. Algebra of Happiness. Uh, our interview with Senator Al Franken, the thing that struck me and it's borne out in a lot of research is when we asked Senator Franken his advice to his younger self, he said, 
uh, don't be so hard on yourself. And Adam Alter's done, a colleague of mine at NYU has done some uh, great research. He went and interviewed a bunch of people in palliative care, essentially people at the end of life, and asked them what their biggest regrets are. And regrets are usually a function not of the mistakes you made, but the mistakes you didn't make, or specifically the shots you didn't take, right? You can't make any shots you don't take. And one of the things that they also talked about, or the kind of the, uh, the things they wish they changed, is they wish they hadn't been so harsh on themselves. And that is the key to any long-term relationship or a key to any long-term relationship is forgiveness. And that is over the course of a decade, two decades, or in the case of Senator uh, Franken's relationship, he's been married for 46 years. One or both of you is gonna screw up at some point, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, and not be as generous, not be as thoughtful, not be as considerate, or just kind of be absent from the relationship. And you need to bring forgiveness. If you're always holding people to a certain standard or ideal in your own mind, you're gonna end up divorced. Uh, you're gonna end up with strained relationships with your kids. You're gonna find reasons why your siblings are assholes and you're constantly ro rolling your eyes and maybe not getting together with them as often as you should. Uh, so bringing a certain level of forgiveness to relationships is paramount in maintaining what is the asset for long-term happiness and reward, and that is a lot of deep and meaningful relationships in addition. In addition, you need to bring that forgiveness to yourself. You need to recognize, and this is my favorite line that gives me a lot of comfort, nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems. And when you screw up, when you screw up and you're sitting in bed and you're staring at the ceiling and going, I said the wrong thing, or I wish I'd done this, you know, I really screwed up here and you're beating yourself up. Yeah, beat yourself up, but then move on. Give yourself time. To, to mourn and be angry and learn from it and then move on. Forgive yourself, forgive yourself. I love Esther Perel's statement around confidence. A confidence is the ability to recognize you're flawed, to recognize you make mistakes and still hold yourself in high regard. Hold yourself in high regard. Have a good relationship with yourself and bring forgiveness. Nothing is ever or as good, as bad as it seems. Cut yourself some slack. You screwed up, but when you look back at the end of your life, and this is what the research shows, you're gonna be more upset about how hard you were on yourself than you are upset about the mistake you made. Let me repeat that. The key is forgiveness. The key is forgiveness. Your mistakes, your mistakes are not the risk here. They're not what attacks your happiness. It's how you respond to those mistakes. Life isn't about what happens to you. Life is about how you respond to what happens to you. Bring forgiveness. Our producers are Caroline Chagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our assistant producer. Assistant producer, we're growing an empire here. Microsoft, watch the fuck out, Amazon. They're nervous. They're nervous. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prof G Show from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll catch you next week on Monday and Thursday. That's right. Dos dias for the dog. It escapes me. It's gone. It's gone. It swam across... The Bay Area uh, swam across the bay in a makeshift raft and has never been seen again.